0: Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This time, we're going to have part one of another two-part podcast podcast series, mini-series, and we're also going to have, go back to our Sentencing Commission Confidential series as well. So it's it's a double series, both a multi-part and also discussing the sentencing guidelines. And in particular, I want to address what uh, an effective program is, and in particular, a question that often comes out, something like, what's the bare minimum I must do under the sentencing guidelines, to have an effective ethics and compliance program. But first, a couple of notes, a couple of dates. First, uh, related to sentencing guidelines in Las Vegas on October seventeenth at three p.m. at this year's SCCE's Compliance and Ethics Institute. Kathleen Grilly, who is the ge- general counsel of the Sentencing Commission, and I will be putting on a program about the organizational sentencing guidelines that if you are going to be in attendance at SCCE, and I assume that many people who listen to this podcast are people who regularly go to SCCE, if you're going to be in Vegas on Tuesday, October 17th at 3 p.m., please join us for that session. So if you're listening to this, I think it's fair to say that you're at least interested in the organizational sentencing guidelines. And if you're going to be in Vegas, then please join us. Secondly... On October the 4th at noon central, 1 p.m. Eastern, we are putting on another in our continuing series of webinars, this time on Code of Conduct, The Road to a New Code of Conduct. So if you haven't joined us for one of our webinars in the past, they're free. All you have to do is sign up. There's going to be a link in the show notes for this podcast for you to go to our website and sign up. If you go to ComplianceBeat.com or MoreheadConsulting.com, there's an easy way to sign up for the for the webinar there. So those are all the plugs for Things that are coming up that I would like you to participate in. But right now, let's talk about the sentencing guidelines. It's been a while, I recognize. It's been a while since I've done a sentencing commission confidential. And I also recognized when I went back through that I hadn't really talked about a question that probably comes up more frequently than anything else, or at least one of the more common questions that comes up about the sentencing guidelines. And it usually goes something like this. What's the bare minimum that we have to do as an organization to comply with the sentencing guideline standards for an effective compliance program. Something like that. That's usually how it comes out. The gist of it being, what, what are the, the basic requirements or what do I have to do to get by, depending on how it's phrased. So I think the first thing to say, the first point that I want to talk about is, obviously, if the question is phrased as, what's the bare minimum or something similar to that, that's the wrong question to be asking. The sentencing guidelines, the standards for an effective compliance program in the sentencing guidelines, are meant to be the floor. They're the bare minimum. I've said this before, and I think it's borne out by not only the expectations of stakeholders when something goes wrong, but the expectations of regulators, as evidenced by statements that keep coming out of the Department of Justice, SEC, and other places, that the expectations for a effective program – really build upon the foundation of what's in the sentencing guidelines, those seven hallmarks, which we'll talk about more here in a minute. That, I think, is a key thing to to kind of put in your mind as a framework first, that that you should be looking at the requirements in the sentencing guidelines that are often discussed, the seven hallmarks in particular, as being the baseline, particularly for a mature Program a program with a large organization, and I'm making an important distinction there. This is another thing that is often overlooked within the context of the sentencing guidelines. Is there are there is a specific discussion within the sentencing guidelines about the expectations and the level of expectations for an effective program and the and the components thereof, dependent on how large your organization is. Let me be more specific. Under 8B 2.1 in the Sentencing Guidelines, which is titled Effective Compliance and Ethics Program, so pretty direct and blunt, we have housed these, what are now well-known as the seven hallmarks of the Sentencing Guidelines, the requirements, again, what I would caution you to think of as the foundation of an effective program. When you look at the Sentencing Guidelines, one thing that you will note, if you have a copy of the Sentencing Guidelines, in particular if you have a copy of chapter 8 or in particular 8B 2.1, this section that talks about the program, your copy should include what are called application notes. So you have the guideline itself which is in an outline format, you know, goes A, sub 1, sub 2, B, etc. But then after the actual main part of the section, there is something that's called commentary and then under that application notes. The application notes are very important and a lot of the concepts that we talk about extensively are actually not in the guideline language itself, but actually in the commentary or application notes that describe exactly what the commission had in mind when they enacted the guideline. In particular, when you're talking about the size of an organization, under 8B 2.1, in the application notes, there's an application note 2C, 2, big letter C. And it's called, helpfully enough, size of the organization. And this is where the commission makes the distinction between large organizations and small organizations. And in particular, when talking about the requirements of a compliance program, it makes the distinction that, and I'm going to quote here, small organizations shall have the same commitment to ethical conduct and compliance with the law as large organizations. However, a small organization may meet the requirements of the guideline with less formality and fewer resources than would be expected of a large organization. This is a very important section to keep in mind. And it's there's two prongs here. And and inevitably, when a small organization reads this or is aware of this, the one prong some, sometimes, not always, I should, probably shouldn't say inevitably, but often is forgotten. And the one that's forgotten here is the first part that's discussed, which is arguably the most important part, which is, that small organizations, large organizations, middle sized organizations, organizations that are in a nonprofit or a government agency or a for profit corporation or an NGO, whatever you are, all, org- all organizations should exhibit the same degree of commitment to ethical conduct and compliance with the law. So that means that your culture that you've been building, your ethical culture, That your commitment to doing the right thing and monitoring misconduct and training and ensuring that the board of directors or the governing authority of your organization is involved in the process, all those concepts that we constantly talk about have to be considered and the commitment to consider them has to be there. The difference is, is if you're small, you may not have as much formality, number one, and you can use fewer resources. So a couple of examples there. One, resources is easy. If you're a large organization and you want to adopt a anonymous reporting mechanism, you might go out and contract with a third-party vendor. And that hotline or helpline system, including a database, may cost you several thousands, maybe tens of thousands, depending on the scale, uh, a year. Well, if you're a small organization of maybe, you know, 50 or fewer employees, you perhaps can't have an anonymous reporting mechanism that is that uh, sophisticated and that uses that that sort of resource and and can cost that much on an annual basis. So you may just have an anonymous tip line that's a, a phone with no caller ID on it. You know, you have to. The, the point is, you have to have considered what you would do in in the absence of having the resources to use. The more sophisticated and more resource-intensive tools. You can't just abandon the ideas behind the sentencing guidelines, behind the seven hallmarks. You still have to have those pieces of the puzzle. And this is the other, you know, this is the other thing that often happens is this is either read, this 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 admonishment about small organizations is either read in the guidelines or interpreted by a counsel or someone else as being, well, we're small, we don't have to have anything. Because we're small and we don't have anything, we're in the clear. That's not accurate. And if you know nothing about me, if you haven't listened to any of their podcast, then then this might be new to you. But if you've listened to me speak at all over the last five or six years, you know one of my pet peeves is this notion that small organizations are somehow exempt, not only from the guideline standards, but from criminal liability, that you're not somehow not going to get in trouble. And as I pointed out repeatedly over and over again, if you go to the ussc.gov, the Sentencing Commission website, not only can you find the text of Chapter 8 that we're talking about today, but you can find lots of material, lots of data about organizations that have been convicted of federal felony offenses and have received sentences over many years. You can go back and look at the data. And again, I don't want to bore the people who listen to me all the time, but, but for those who haven't heard it before, you need to know that small organizations are the ones that end up being charged. We hear about Volkswagen. We hear about Wells Fargo. We hear about data breaches and an Equifax and the other misconduct of both intentional and unintentional activities that might lead to liability all the time. We hear about the big scandals. We don't hear about the 200-person defense contractor that has gotten in trouble for a false claim case. You know, we do if we happen to be in that industry, but otherwise we don't know about that. And those are the ones, those are the organizations that face, the smaller organizations are the ones that face the highest consequences. And oftentimes it's the it's a organization killer. You know, using that example again of a defense contractor, if you were to take a federal felony conviction as a defense contractor or subcontractor, it is highly likely that you could be debarred from future government work. You're at least going to have to go through a debarment process and, and you know, hope that somehow you can salvage the situation. But that is by no means guaranteed. So when you look at the guidelines, when you look at any of the requirements, be sure to look at the application notes as well because they, there's important material in there and make sure you read it yourself it's not the sentencing guidelines are not the most exciting read in the world it's not a uh, summertime beach fiction but it is uh, relatively easy to get through chapter eight in particular if you just only want to look at 8b 2.1 which is the section that I'm talking about that has the famous seven hallmarks of a sentencing, of a compliance program, an effective compliance and ethics program, uh, it's not very long. It's it's the, the the guideline itself is about a page, and the application notes make up another, just call it two two and a half pages. So it's it's something that you can read yourself carefully in, in less than a half an hour, you know, even if you go really slowly and, and contemplate the, the different nuances that are here. I, you know, we oftentimes, I, and, and, you know, go to an event, an SCCE event or another event, or go listen to a webinar or listen to our outside counsel or, or someone else who is steeped in compliance and ethics law or, or the guidelines themselves, and 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 listen to their interpretations, and we're going to talk here in a minute about why that you know is not all that may be an issue, because I want to talk about the s- seven hallmarks. But it's important to I think if you're going to be responsible for compliance in your organization, to take the time to actually look at this. And, and that really goes back to the original question at the top of the podcast here: What's the bare minimum? Well. You need to decide for yourself what the bare minimum for your organization is, is because it's, it's going to vary depending on what your, what your organization is, how it's structured, how big it is, how, how, what kind of resources you have, what kind of logistical challenges do you have, what risks do you face? You know, you need to interpret the requirements of this section through the prism of what your organizational requirements are. So that's an important thing to consider. The last thing I would say, the last area I wanted to talk about when, when I kind of get this question of what the bare minimum is, that kind of begs the question of what are the seven hallmarks? And that would seem to be straightforward, but it's not exactly. And 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 part of the reason for that is, although there are seven sections under A8B 2.1B, where this the seven hallmarks are housed, so to speak— the way they've been inter- these the, the seven hallmarks have been interpreted interpreted over time has varied, and in fact, I think Joe Murphy actually did an article about this two or three years ago on maybe the SCCE website. If I can find that, I'll put that in the show notes where he talked about the fact that you know over time people have sort of not necessarily misinterpreted but mixed up <laughs> what the actual seven hallmarks might be because they 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 don't necessarily logically flow. So again a good reason why you want to pick up the actual text yourself and review it so that you're familiar with it and you sort of get it from the horse's mouth. So what are the seven hallmarks that you need to consider and how does that fit into this question of what the bare minimum might be? So the first is under B1, the organization shall establish standards and procedures to prevent and deter criminal conduct. This is generally interpreted to mean written standards, but it also says procedures. So I think this is a process admonition as well as an admoni- admonition to have documents somewhere that uh, somebody presumably has reviewed. So I think it's important to have code. It's important to have policies, but have those codes and policies married if you will, to procedures that make them valid, that cause them to be understood, to be disseminated. The department in the last few years has talked more about this and expanded on the idea of sort of living documents with, if you will, that the documents both in their construction and development and in their dissemination need to be something that is properly disseminated to the entire organization and to everybody who's a, who needs to be aware of it. So it's not a matter of just creating these things and having them. establishing establishing them, as the guideline says. Establishing them is good, but you need to have procedures that go along with those standards that make sure that they're understood and available. The second hallmark of the sentencing guidelines talks about the people involved in the process and governance of the compliance and ethics program talks about the quote-unquote governing authority. Uh, Board of Directors is never used as terminology in the sentencing guidelines because, again, the guidelines cover every type of organization possible. And so you have Board of Governors, you have Regents, you have sometimes no Board of Directors at all if you're an organization that doesn't have a board. So the governing authority, whomever whomever that might be, however many people that might be, that is considered the top of the organization, and the guidelines speak about those people or that person, if it happens to only be one, exercising reasonable oversight over the program. The second group of people is, quote-unquote, high-level personnel that need to ensure that the organization has an effective program program and that they are specifically assigned. So this is going to be the person or persons that are the chief compliance officer or whatever their title is, but understood to be uh, ultimately responsible for the program at the staff, at the highest level of the staff. And then lastly, and this is where a disconnect happens oftentimes with smaller organizations, but can happen with larger organizations as well, is the guidelines make, understand the difference between the high level personnel and the individuals charged with the day-to-day operational responsibility of the program this is something that we focused on in when i was at the commission in 2010 with the with the revised amendments in 2010 as well this notion that particularly in larger organizations and more sophisticated organizations the people who are actually responsible for the boots on the ground the program's functioning on a day-to-day day-to-day basis may not be that high level person that's designated cuz oftentimes you have a chief compliance officer who's also maybe the chief chief legal officer or the chief audit officer and maybe they are involved in the day to day operation, depending on the on how big the organization is and what's going on. But oftentimes they're not. There is a director level person, or or an associate general counsel, or somebody else, or a group of somebody's else's <laughs> who are responsible for the day to day operation of the program. And so the guidelines make a point of talking about those people too. This is part of the seven hallmarks, folks. This is important to remember. This is not nice to have or would be a good idea. This is the foundation provisions of a effective ethics and compliance program, and it's talking about the lines uh, between these different roles from the board level, the governing authority level, high level authority, and people with the day-to-day operational responsibility for the program. Again, don't talk about chief compliance officers or compliance officers or ethics officers. Those terms are not used in the sentencing guidelines. The best way to describe this role is to call it the person or persons with the day-to-day operational responsibility for the program. And there are some responsibilities that those individuals have. Specifically, I'm not going to go into those here because we won't have time, But I've talked about those in the past and maybe we'll opine on them. I'm sure we'll opine on them in the future. But I just want to get through what really are the seven hallmarks here for those people that are listening. Number three, the organization shall use reasonable efforts not to have people who have been in big, bad trouble before. I'm paraphrasing here. But basically, hallmark number three is not uh, doing due diligence to ensure that people with a bad background, whether that's a criminal background or have been inconsistent in their compliance and ethical behavior in the past, should not have authority for the program. That seems to be a no-brainer. I don't know. I can't tell you off the top of my head of an organization that's run afoul of, of this specifically. But oftentimes, uh, I, and I don't think this is a bad idea, if, if this is the floor, the floor is you don't have bad actors in the compliance program. I think it's very easy to see that a best practice is, is you don't have bad actors at all, as best you can tell. So I think you can build upon hallmark number three to have a conflicts of interest policy and process, for example, where you're trying to expand it out, not only for those who have responsibility for the compliance program itself, but Responsibility within the organization generally. Hallmark number four is that uh, an organization has to periodically communicate its standards and procedures, so your policies and code and other processes. So that's communicate, not train. But it's been, uh, but the part B is con- is conducting quote unquote effective training programs and otherwise disseminating disseminating information. The important thing to get away from hallmark number four is that the, that this is a two-pronged piece of the puzzle. Uh, traditionally, people have been really good, uh, organizations, particularly larger organizations, have been really good at doing training programs. But the quote-unquote otherwise disseminating information or communicating periodically, the more informal discussions around compliance have been lacking in the past. I think that this has changed a lot. There's been a lot more focus on informal communication and commu- and compliance communication over the years. The lines can be blurred between what's formal quote unquote training program and communication. I certainly understand that, but I think that you need to keep you know keep in mind that kind of the salient point here is that you have to have both. Another thing that's discussed here is that individuals that need to be trained and communicated to are And I quote here, members of the governing authority, high-level personnel, substantial authority personnel, the organization's employee, and as appropriate, the organization's agents. So that's a big crew. And, And that's a big crew that needs to be trained. So oftentimes I've seen organizations question as to whether they need to be training their agents or other third parties that are acting on their behalf. Well, if you read the sentencing guidelines, I think it's pretty black and white that You need to at least assess the risk and have a reasonable argument as to why you're not training and communicating on a regular basis. And also the board. You know, those individuals that are third parties sometimes get left out of this mix and the board often gets left out of this mix. It's still, I would say, not as uncommon as it used to be, but still I run into a lot of organizations that don't train their board. And don't forget the other part here. Remember, it's not just training. It's communicating and otherwise disseminating. So that informal communication process has to be happening not just with the rank and file, but again, at the board level and with those third-party agents. So keep that in mind. The distinction isn't made here just for training. It's, it's for everything that's covered under hallmark number four. So that's a lot of material and we haven't, we've only gotten through four of the seven hallmarks and what the sort of baseline might be. So I'm going to refrain from finishing right now and we'll go ahead and have a second part next week that talks about the final three hallmarks of the sentencing guideline and addresses them from the the perspective of what sort of the bare minimum which is the wrong question again, but what what the floor bedrock standards are. And I'll have some finishing thoughts as well. In the meantime, please, if you haven't already, check out our webinar scheduled for October the 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, The Road to a New Code of Conduct. You can sign up at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com. If you have any questions about it before you want to sign up, just you can shoot us an email from those locations. It's free, 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 free. Please join us. And additionally, uh, if you're interested in sentencing guidelines and going to be in Las Vegas for CEI, come by on the 17th at 3 p.m. to see Kathleen Grilly, the General Counsel of Sentencing Commission, and myself talk about the organizational guidelines. Until next time, thanks. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com. (laughs) We'll be right back. <laughs> back.